Would you open up your Bibles to 1 Samuel chapter 4 and please do that. It will really help you to follow along uh, with tonight's message. Uh, and as we come to look at God's word, let's pray and ask for his help and blessing. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word and the opportunity and the privilege that we have to open it, to, to read it, uh, and to see what you have to say to us about who you are and who we are in light of your mercy and your grace. Father, would you be our teacher tonight by your Holy Spirit? Would you soften our hearts? Would you give us opening, open ears? Would you help us to be willing uh, to be challenged by you and make a response? We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, it's been said before in our series in First Samuel that the authors like to use comparison and contrast to make their point, whether that's between two or more people, whether it's between the national situation put alongside the spiritual situation. The writers like to use comparison and contrast to bring out the meaning in the story. And First Samuel chapter 4, it moves from the very personal level to the national level. The contrast, as you'll see tonight, couldn't be more clear. If you were here a few weeks back when we looked at 1 Samuel chapter 3, you would have seen how it ended. The boy Samuel hearing directly from God. And Samuel, in response, was faithful to God. He was growing in the Lord and all recognized, as 1 Samuel chapter 3 verse 20 tells us, that Samuel was a prophet of the Lord speaking on behalf of God himself. God was with him. God knew him. And Samuel knew God. There was intimacy there. There was faithfulness. And with that came blessing and presence from God. And the nation were able to see this. They saw this and they recognized uh, chapter 4, verse 1. And the word of Samuel came to all Israel. We've moved from In the days of Eli, as you can see in chapter 3, verse 1, the word of the Lord being very rare, to now the word of the Lord coming through Samuel to the nation regularly to the point that the nation can recognize Samuel's status as a prophet. But where Samuel, because of his obedience and his faithfulness, experiences God's blessing and God's presence, the nation, because of its disobedience and because of its unfaithfulness, does not It cannot. God refuses to go with the nation. He refuses to bless them because of their sinfulness. Today's passage is all about God's blessing and God's presence, or in the case of Israel, the lack of it. Growing up, I got really into ice hockey. I watched a lot of ice hockey at some very early hours in the morning. I was watching NHL. That's the American and Canadian League. I should have watched the Belfast Giants. It would have got me a lot more sleep. But as a teenager, I got absolutely addicted to this sport. And not just the sport itself, but the traditions that go with it. There's a lot of tradition in the game of ice hockey. And there's a lot of ones that I really enjoy. For example, when a young player makes his big break, into the team when he gets called up to the first team and he's going to play usually all the veterans all the senior players take that opportunity to prank him in front of the nation and the most common way that this happens is during pre-game warm-ups usually what happens is the team piles out onto the ice single file led by the captain from the locker rooms to the ice they do some laps before stretching and taking some shots But when someone gets called up for their first game, they're given the privilege to lead the team out onto the ice. 
And as their rookie takes his first step out onto the ice to lead the team in skating some laps, the older players take a step back. They don't go with him. They leave him out there by himself, out on the ice to do a few laps in front of 20,000 people. And the rookie thinks the team are behind him until he hears the laughter of the crowd. He turns around and realizes he's actually on his lonesome. And that's not dissimilar to the situation Israel were in as they went into battle with the Philistines. They assumed God would be with them until it was blatantly clear he wasn't. First one tells us that Israel went out to battle with the Philistines. Now the Philistines, they were a constant enemy for God's people throughout the time of the judges, throughout Samuel's time, and the early monarchy of the nation of Israel. Although even these days we'd use that term Philistine, yeah, Philistine, to imply someone would be backward or uncultured or barbaric, they were a pretty advanced people for their day. They were constantly trying to expand their territory. They were pretty uh, advanced in warfare, and they often came into conflict with Israel. And this passage details one of the times when the Philistines got one up on Israel. But let's be clear, it's nothing to do with the Philistines. It's nothing to do with their their might or their tactics. It's because Israel have gone into battle without God on their side. They've gone forward without God's blessing and without his presence. We see that the battle spreads, the Philistines win the day, and Israel lose 4,000 men. 4,000 people are killed on the battlefield. And returning to the camp, in verse 3 you see, the elders of Israel ask a really good question. It's a really good question. Why has the Lord defeated us today? before the Philistines? It's a good question. It shows that they know something about God. They knew it was God that defeated them, not the Philistines. They realized that they were not recipients of God's blessing, that God gave them over to defeat. But they don't reflect on this. They don't reflect on the question they've just asked. They don't spend time in self-reflection as they should to see what they have done to cause God not to go with them, but instead they rush to action. Action that is rash, action that is foolish, that is sinful, that's an affront to the God that they claim allegiance to. Verse 3 continues, read it with me. Let us bring the ark of the covenant of the Lord here from Shiloh, that it may come among us and save us from the power of our enemies. So the people sent to Shiloh and brought from there the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord of Hosts, who is enthroned in the cherubim. And the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, were there with the Ark of the Covenant of God. While the question that they ask after defeat shows that they know a bit about God, their actions show show us that they don't know God at all. They see God as a means to an end. They see God as a way to achieve the purposes that they want And you see that in how they treat the Ark of the Covenant. The Ark of the Covenant for the Israelites was understood to have been a visible sign of the Lord's presence. It was a sign of God's covenant with his people, hence the name, the Ark of the Covenant. The covenant that the Lord would be their God and that they would be God's people and so receive God's blessing and his presence. But the Ark had military connotations too. 
which is why the people probably tried to rush and use it. Uh, You see that it was present in time of great victories in battle. Numbers 10 verse 35 says, And whenever the ark set out, Moses said, Arise, O Lord, and let your enemies be scattered, and let those those who hate you flee before you. The ark linked with resounding uh, victory in battle. In Joshua 3, when Israel entered Canaan, the ark went before the people as a sign of God's promised victory. And sure enough, God's people conquered Canaan, the ark being associated with victory in battle. But here's what the elders didn't get. The ark was merely a symbol of God's blessing and presence not a way to earn or gain or manipulate God's blessing and favor the ark was associated with victory in battle because God had called his people to those battles he had gone before them and he had earned them those victories he commanded the ark to go into those battles as a sign of his presence the ark's presence didn't presence didn't make God be any more present The ark's presence didn't earn God's favor. God had given favor and so commanded the ark to go forth as a sign of that. Deuteronomy 12 verse 5 actually details that the ark was only to go forward at God's command. It says this, But you shall seek the place that the Lord your God will choose out of all your tribes to put his name and make his habitation there. There you shall go. But Israel thinking that the ark was some sort of magical box that could guarantee them victory. They ignored God's instructions concerning it. They went, they brought it back into their camp, and they put their trust in it. A superstitious belief in a box, rather than faith in their covenant God that the ark was there to represent. Verse 3 says that they say, it will come and save us. It this ark, not God. The narrator also hints at their superstition in verse 4 when he says, the ark of the covenant of the Lord of hosts who's enthroned on the cherubim. See, these cherubim were carved into the wood on the ark. These people thought that God was literally bound to the wood on this ark. They were literally putting God in a box. And we see with the ark are Hophni and Phinehas, Eli's evil sons. This shows us the contempt that the people had towards God. These were men that God already said will die because of their sin against him. But the people choose to delight in the ark and not in the God of the ark. And verse 5 tells us, Such was the cheer when it entered the camp that the earth resounded. But look how God uses that to impact the Philistines' reaction. First, fear. They acknowledge what God has done in the past, striking down the Egyptians in verse 8. But then verse 9, we see it strengthens their resolve to fight. And they go into battle. And the Philistines defeat Israel in what's described as a great slaughter. Whereas during the time of the the battle, at the the start of the passage, 4,000 Israelites were killed. And that's still a lot of people. This time, 30,000 soldiers are slid. The increase in death is huge. But more than that, the ark is captured. And in line with what God has said in chapter 2, Phineas and Hophni die on the same day. 
The people of Israel had been in this prolonged state of sin. They had constantly rejected God time and time again. That was clear in how they were living. The state of the nation made that clear. The state of the worship made that clear. But still they thought they could treat God like a get-out-of-jail-free card. Like a quick fix option to all of their problems. A sure way to find blessing that they thought they were entitled to. And they found out in brutal fashion that's not how God works. God is not a genie in a bottle. He doesn't grant us three wishes only to be tricked when we ask with the first wish for infinite wishes. He's not a lucky charm like a horseshoe or a rabbit's foot. He can't be manipulated through things that we think could maybe control him. Whether that's how we talk, how we're perceived, the position that he's given us. Maybe even how we pray. We can pray for selfish things and then give them a holy twist. Lord, make me rich and I'll give some money to the property fund. God is not some sort of cosmic Santa Claus. The things that he gives us are not to be used to try and sway him. Our baptism doesn't sway God. Our church membership, our attendance doesn't sway God. It doesn't earn up brownie points with him. Our theology doesn't necessitate that we're blessed by God either, nor does our Presbyterianism or our first supported down heritage. Don't trust in those things to give you life. They can't. Don't trust in those things to help you convince God to give you what you want. That's not how he works. If you treat these things as ultimate, it'll have deathly consequences. If we treat these things as a way to bend God's arm, it will have deathly consequences. God is a God of covenant, as the Ark of the Covenant would indicate. A covenant in which Blessings are promised if the conditions, faith, are kept. And which curses are promised if the conditions are broken. The people of Israel showed by their lack of faith, their lack of love, and their lack of care for God, that there are deathly consequences from rejecting God and his will, and instead seeking to find blessing elsewhere. Doing that leads to a place where there can be no blessing. Even as Christians, even as followers of Christ, when we sin and sin habitually, we're functionally faithless. And there are deathly consequences to that. If we're living in constant habitual sin, our walk with Jesus cannot flourish. Our witness cannot be vibrant. And we won't know the blessings of God richly in our lives. And if you're not a believer here this evening, there are deathly consequences for you too in your rejection of God. You might think you can accumulate for yourself things on this earth that will give life, but in doing that really in your sin, you're being robbed of real living and instead you're being tube-fed poison that will lead to death. You will experience death here and now. You will not be able to experience pleasures on this earth that God has ordained for you. But also you'll experience death eternally in hell. Where you will go forever in the presence of God's wrath. But the beauty of God's covenant is this. God is willing 
to take on the curse of our covenant breaking upon himself. And he shows that to us in Christ Jesus, the only man to live a life that deserved blessing, the only man to live and not try and twist God's arm to suit his agenda or try to manipulate God to serve himself. And he took that curse that we deserved on the cross as he bled and he died. He took our curse so we could share his blessings. And so that we could know that it's not the things that God gives us that saves, whether that's his ark or his church or his baptism or his Bible, but it's God himself who saves and freely gives us to, that to us. That's worth giving a mighty shout about. God is one who blesses us in Christ Jesus with every spiritual blessing, with life eternal, with hope, with a future, with the assurance of battle won. And he calls us away from seeking for him to give us what we want, but he calls us to himself where we can find the blessing that we need. God's blessing is freely given and is found in obeying his will for each and every one of us. Faith in Jesus Christ and faithful living for Jesus Christ. This evening, do you see that God himself is the richest source of a blessing you could ever imagine? He is a boundless ocean of being that will never run dry and he invites you to share in that life. He himself, the creator, not his creation, he is our greatest prize. The story then shifts from the line of battle back to Shiloh and we see that when we try to use God, we lose God. A man of Benjamin runs, his clothes are torn, there's dirt on his head. This is biblical language, typical of grief. And he runs for 20 miles to Eli. 20 miles is a long way to run, especially with bad news. And typical of Eli, he's sitting. He's inactive, inactive as he was in the affairs of his sons, inactive as he was in the spiritual decline of the nation. And as he's sitting, he's trembling for the ark of God. It's kind of ironic, really, isn't it, that he's trembling for the very thing that Israel thought would make others tremble. But Eli, he's got knowledge. He knows that this ark has gone into battle when it shouldn't have. And he knows that with it are his two evil sons. And the man of Benjamin breaks the news to Eli, first of the great defeat, so then of the death of Eli's sons, and finally of the capture of the ark. And notice verse 18. It was the mention of the ark's capture that caused Eli to fall back and break his neck and die. Eli's ministry ends in his death, the death of his sons, and most tragically, the ark being captured. And this is a sign that God's blessings were not upon his people and that God's presence was no longer with his people. The theme of God's presence not being with his people really comes to light, actually, in the last four verses. Eli's daughter-in-law was pregnant, we're told, and the news of Eli's death, combined with the shocking news that led to Eli's death, caused her to go into labor. And as she gives birth, she tragically dies. And this is just a dark chapter of death, the sign of God's judgment on sin. But as she dies, we see verses 20 to 22. About the time of her death, the woman attending her said to her, Do not be afraid, for you've borne a son. 
But she did not answer or pay attention. And she named the child Ichabod, saying, The glory has departed from Israel, because the ark of God had been captured, and because of her father-in-law and her husband. And she said, The glory has departed from Israel, for the ark of God has been captured. She names her child Ichabod. Ichabod meaning no glory, or, or where is the glory? And it's clear from verse 22 that it's not the legacy of Eli or her family that she's primarily concerned with. But it's God and his presence. She realizes that the capturing of the Ark of the Covenant of God shows more than just a battle lost. More than just this precious relic being stolen. If the presence of the Ark was to be understood as a sign of God's blessing and presence with his people, the fact that God allowed for it to be taken from his people is a sign that God is no longer giving his saving presence to Israel. He's withholding himself from the nation. Richard Phillips says that the capture of the Ark was the symbol, not the cause, of God's self-imposed exile from his people. Phineas' wife could see what was happening as she died. God was chastising, he was disciplining his people for their sin, their covenant faithlessness. And he was removing his felt presence from them and symbolizing that by the ark that the people so idolized. He was distancing himself from them in order to draw them to him again. The Westminster Confession of Faith, we heard it this morning, we're hearing it this evening. It speaks of how God does this not to those he hates, but to those that he loves. Chapter 18, paragraph 4 states, True believers may have the assurance of their salvation shaken, diminished, or temporarily lost in ways, as by negligence in preserving it, by falling into some special sin which wounds the conscience and grieves the spirit, by some sudden or violent temptation, or by God's withdrawing the light of his countenance and allowing even those who reverence him to walk in darkness and have no light. King David had an awareness of his sin after being caught in adultery, and he knew this, which is why in Psalm 51, verses 10 to 12, he says, Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence. Take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. Phineas' wife was so aware of God removing his presence from the nation. She was so grieved by it that her last action was to name her child Ichabod. No glory, no presence, and so no peace. Maybe that resonates with you tonight. No glory... No presence, no peace. And the blessings of God that were once so real in your life, they feel like a distant memory. And whether that's because of your sin, whether habitual or even one-off, whether that's because of the things that you're focusing on, maybe that's because of failing to focus really on the Lord, or even as the confession of faith says, for no obvious reason at all. Maybe you feel far from God. Ichabod, no glory, no presence. And maybe that resonates with your heart. What do you do in situations like this? Do you go looking for blessings elsewhere? What do you do? An American pastor and theologian, Lincoln Duncan, says this. 
It always starts with going back to Jesus and his grace to us to begin with. There's nothing better in this world than Jesus and you can't get far away from God without thinking there's something better in this world than Jesus or there's something that you lack in this world that has robbed you for the joy that only Jesus can give. So go back to Jesus again and again and realize again the fullness of him who fills all in all is at the heart of becoming close to God again. That means realizing his grace toward you. That means recognizing afresh the enormity of Christ's mercy to us. It means that we realize our sin and its severity. And then the grace of God and the magnitude of his mercy. We were singing that earlier. Our sins, they are many, but his mercy is more. And I would say this, Ichabod is a name given to a baby boy that denotes God being far off. But there's a far greater name that was once given to a baby boy, Jesus Christ, Emmanuel, God with us. And in Christ Jesus, we have a God who is with us and for us. If we put our trust in Jesus, and as Ligon Duncan says, remind ourselves of Jesus by going back to Jesus, Emmanuel, not Ichabod, will rule our hearts. That's not to say you'll never feel far off from God. We might. That's not to say we'll be happy all the day. That's nonsense. But we can know that because of the finished work of Jesus Christ and through the assurance poured out into our hearts by the Holy Spirit who dwells in us, that God will never leave us or forsake us. Yes, he might withdraw his felt presence from us, but he will never leave us in total despair. And as we trust in God and fall more and more in love with Jesus, we realize all the more that the Israelites in this passage had it wrong. God is not the way to earn the blessings that we want. His presence is not the means to gain the things that we desire. A Christian values our virtues, our vices, are not how we get God to give us the stuff we yearn for. No, the very presence of God is the very blessing that we all so desperately need. The presence of Christ in you, the hope of glory, is the greatest blessing there is to be known. The Holy Spirit working in and through you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure, is the greatest privilege of all. God is not a stepping stone on the journey to blessing. If we treat him as such, we'll go by ourselves and it'll have deathly consequences. God himself is the destination in which the blessing that we need is found. Do you know this God today? Do you know the Savior who is with you? Do you know his spirit working in and through you? God himself is our blessing. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you give us yourself. We thank you that you are the goal of our salvation. Father, our, our hearts are so big that this world will never satisfy us. So may we not look to this world for things that we call blessing but we look to Jesus Christ and the benefits that we share in him we pray this in his name Amen
Let's stand and sing, King of Kings, Majesty.